very excited to welcome and introduce our guest speaker today. He's been here before, and we're very excited to have him again. Uh, but Brother Tom, Tom is a graduate of UC Davis and served on staff with crew, his wife as well, for the last seven, oh, I'm sorry, 11 years. Tom and Jessica have four daughters uh, from the ages of seven on down. Um, I'm sure that keeps you very busy. Yeah. <laughs> and he's also served in ministry reaching the college students at UC Davis uh, in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. And for the last seven years in the Inland Empire. And currently he is Cruise Inland Empire Director. And so we're really blessed to have him to be here. I think this is on now. Okay, praise God. I don't have to shout. But we're very excited to have him here and to bring us God's word. And so uh, let's just welcome him as he comes up. Praise God. Oh, there we go. I'm here. Yeah, so good to be with you guys again. Um, some of you were probably here back in November, uh, and I, I got to preach a, a guest sermon then. And funny thing, that was November 6th. And now here we are. Pastor Roy pointed this out to me. Now it's June 11th. So 11 6, 6 11. Very, very interesting. It's all, yeah, it's, it's, it's the will of God. Um, but yeah, um, why don't, we, why don't we start with reading our passage, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get started. Um, that might not be the first slide, but it's going to be in, in Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 1. So let me read that for us, and we'll pray and ask God for God's help. All right, Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we open your word this morning. We pray that you would make it run swiftly in our lives. We pray that it would go from our ear to our heart, from our heart um, to our life, and from our life to our lips in conversation. That uh, as the rain comes to the, to the earth and makes things grow, that your, your word would not return void in our lives this morning, but accomplish that which you have purpose for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, as Roy shared, I'm on staff with Crew. Crew is very known for evangelism, so it makes sense that in this Disciples at Work series, I would kind of come in and give this guest message about evangelism at work. It's just, it kind of fits in with being Crew staff, right? And not only that, but I actually brought free stuff with me. I brought free, three free books, and here's how we're going to do this. My family, we have a lot of June things, so we got a June 21st birthday, that's my daughter Agnes. Does anybody happen to have a birthday on June 21st? Anybody? It's a small sample size of an audience. All right, I just want to check. No, nobody, nobody so far. Anybody have a June 23rd birthday? Anybody? No, okay. Anybody have a June birthday at all? All right, we got two June birthdays. This is amazing. Was that just two? Was that three? Oh, we got three June birthdays? Is that right? Keep your hands raised if you got a June birthday. 
Well, that's amazing because I have three books. So let's get, let's get these out to the June birthdays. So oh, would, you, would you help me pass these, pass these back? I got one, one going back a couple rows, right? And then I'm like going way into the live stream here. Yeah, but this is a book called Sent by uh, Heather Holloman. It's a fantastic book on evangelism. My message isn't really based on it, but I take a lot of inspiration from her. Uh, one of the reasons is because a lot of times I think evangelism messages, they can be very guilt-based. Am I right? It's like, this is a good Christian thing to do. If you're a good Christian, you should be sharing your faith. And that's kind of what I heard growing up. That didn't motivate me a lot to share my faith. Uh, the whole kind of, you should be better. You should do, you should do good things as a Christian. Uh, but this focuses on a very positive, just embracing your identity, your sent identity from the Lord and the positive side of the opportunity. And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, when Pastor Roy invited me to speak as part of this Disciples at Work series, I was really encouraged to hear some of what you all have been working through. Uh, in one of your messages, Roy, I heard you talk about that sacred-secular divide, the sacred-secular divide that Martin Luther helped break down. It was a divide that said, if you're a priest, if you're a theologian, if you're a monk, then your work matters. But if you have a normal job, your work is insignificant. And it's unspiritual. There's nothing that you could have to say about the Lord. And the, the Luther and the Reformers said, no, all work is spiritual. You don't, have to be, you don't have to have this spiritual component to kind of rubber stamp your job and justify your work because God invented work. Luther had this quote. He said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. See, he wants us to cultivate his creation in every way. And he wants us to love others and to contribute to human flourishing in this world. So if you find your work meaningless, the good news of the gospel comes in and says, no, you can do all things to the glory of God. You can do all things to the glory of God. You don't need to look down on yourself and think, man, ministry is the real work. But there's another problem on, this, on the other side of this sacred-secular divide, and that would be maybe it feels comfortable. Maybe it feels kind of nice to have your place, to be kind of, hey, I have my job, my role is to go about my day-to-day, -day, my career, and I leave the spiritual stuff to the professional Christians. Have you guys ever heard of a professional Christian? That would be somebody in ministry. That would be like Pastor Roy. That would be like crew staff, right? So sharing your faith, oh, that's for the professionals. I don't need to do that. My job is just to work. It's do my job, give to the church, you know, support missionaries. And you know, in that case, the gospel comes in and it challenges us with good news that there's a greater purpose to your life. That despite the important place for pastors and for full-time ministry workers, we're all called to carry out Jesus' work. We have a greater employer. And Jesus calls us to an integrated life, a life where we glorify God in these ordinary rhythms of work, family, rest, and also embrace the greater calling he's given us to share with others, to care for others. So this morning, uh, we're looking at this passage um, that I think is probably familiar to many of us. That in it, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I love to speak out of this passage to cast vision to our student groups um, on different campuses. And I also think it'll be really helpful for us as we think specifically about being disciples at work probably because it's a passage about workers, right? It's a passage about laborers. And we can all glorify God through our work. And part of that is living out our discipleship to Jesus at work, 
at school, in our vocation, in our neighborhood, uh, by entering into this harvest that he's talking about, into this greater work he's doing to redeem people to himself. So my main point today as we look at this passage is that the Lord of the harvest invites us into his work. We're all professional Christians. And together we're going to look at a few aspects of that work. So first is the job description of a harvester. Second, the motivations of a harvester. And third, the qualifications of a harvester. Job description, motivations, qualifications. So first, let's, t- let's take a look at the, the job description of the harvester. Uh, let me read verse 35 for us. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Let me summarize what's been going on in the book of Matthew up to this point. Matthew 1 through 3, that's kind of the origin story. You've got Jesus' genealogy, a birth narrative, a little bit of the beginning, um, the work of John the Baptist, kind of preparation for Jesus' ministry. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And that's when his ministry is inaugurated, chapter 4. He's tempted in the wilderness. And then he begins to call his first disciples and start a public ministry. And then it pretty quickly, chapters 5 to 7, Jesus preaches this, this amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right? With the Beatitudes and, and all these other, this incredible teaching. And then when you look at chapters 8 and 9, you see it contains a lot of healing narratives. Jesus healing people of diseases, of, of uh, you know, demon possession, different things like that. So as you read verse 35, it's really summing up Jesus' ministry so far. He traveled everywhere. He taught God's word. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. He sat with people who were hurting and afflicted with diseases, and he healed them. And while this verse isn't a command to imitate Jesus necessarily, seeing these categories of his ministry, I think it's very instructive to us. Because in a, verse, a few verses, Jesus is going to talk about the plentiful harvest, and these categories help us to see the job description. What is he even talking about when he talks about the harvest being plentiful? So look at, with me at these categories. This isn't in order. This isn't exhaustive necessarily. But here's three things that a worker in, har- in, the, in the harvest field does. So one, a worker in God's harvest field shares the gospel. And you see that in Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? A worker in God's harvest field teaches God's word, helps people to grow, right? He was teaching in their synagogues. And finally, a worker in in God's harvest field cares for people's physical and emotional needs. You see that with Jesus healing every disease and every affliction. And here's something to take from this, is that Jesus' ministry, it's very holistic. It's very integrated. It's sharing the gospel with people who haven't heard. We think about that a lot when we think about evangelism. It's also teaching God's word and helping people grow. It's also caring. It's coming with this love and care for the physical and emotional needs of the people he meets. So it's, it's evangelism. It's discipleship. It's justice work. It's a lot of different things. And, and my encouragement to you is to start to see that harvest more holistically in a few different ways. Now, Jesus' work, it's ultimately about love for people and a longing for them to be restored to the life God intended for them. So this involves people's bodies. It involves people's souls too. And the heart of a harvester is taking an interest 
in the people God has placed around you, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your classroom, in your family, in your church, and striving to point them towards the restoration they can find in Jesus. One or two of these categories, teaching, you know, preaching the gospel, healing, probably comes more naturally to you than the others, right? Maybe you're great at caring for people's needs, but you lack confidence to explain God's word to others. Maybe you love to communicate the good news to people you meet. I meet, occasionally I meet people like that that are just really pumped on evangelism. I think for most of us, it's more of a challenge, right? But maybe that's true of you. You're pumped on evangelism, but you need to grow in love and compassion for their circumstances. And I think really we should seek to grow in all three of these categories. Teaching, sharing, and caring. A lot of us think of as evangelism as waiting for this perfect opportunity to share a four-point gospel outline with somebody. And we're kind of waiting for the day. Maybe they'll ask us, they'll see our good lives and ask us, please tell me, what is the gospel? And you'll be ready with that, you know, whatever, that booklet or that the three circles, whatever you've memorized, right? Um, and we do need to be able to clearly explain the gospel. That's part of evangelism. At the same time, we need to see evangelism more broadly. Evangelism is ultimately loving people and entering into their journey to point them towards Jesus. So with people you know in your workplace or your neighborhood, that'll likely begin long before you get that opportunity to share, to explain the gospel. And you don't have to wait until you get that perfect, perfect opportunity. Um, so let me break this down into some steps for us. So first, we need to take an interest and curiosity in the lives of others. We need to take an interest and curiosity in the lives of others. And that might sound pretty basic and fundamental, but think about this. When was the last time an acquaintance or even a friend of yours asked you a question, a personal question, that went beyond just kind of surface level? It's, it's become pretty uncommon to show that kind of interest in another person's life these days. And as believers, we should be curious about the lives of others because we know their life matters. They were made in the image of God. We know they have a story to tell that's important. And most importantly, we know it's following after the heart of Jesus. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to pursue. He pursued us and he wants to pursue over the other people. So interest and curiosity. And part of that curiosity should involve just discovering where they're at spiritually. Discovering where they're at spiritually. Because you really don't know. You might feel this insecurity that says, only religious people are interested. I kind of know. I know which of my friends are Christians. And I think these people, they're definitely not interested. They wouldn't want to talk to me about this. But that's far from the truth. Because everyone is on a spiritual journey. Now that journey may be in different places. Maybe it's moving towards God. Maybe it's moving away from him. Maybe it's kind of stuck. But there's nobody that this doesn't apply to because God has put eternity into all of our hearts. We're all spiritual beings. So everyone's on that journey. And as we're curious and as we care about people's lives, it's only natural that we would want to know, you know, our, the lives of our coworkers, of our friends, to discover, hey, what has that journey been like for you? And even to share some of our journey with them. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're on a journey too towards the heart of Jesus Towards, on this pilgrimage to know God and love him for eternity. Um, so one of the simplest questions you can ask to begin a spiritual conversation is what is your spiritual or religious background? What is your spiritual or religious background? Um, and here's a great moment to do that. Maybe somebody asks you, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And you're like, I went to church. And then there's this awkwardness that kind of hangs there. And you could be like, 
oh, I'll change the subject. Or this happens to me a lot. Like somebody asked me, I'm like hanging out with some parents from my kid's school. And they're like, you know, we're talking about their work. I'm a lawyer, all right. You know, I'm a teacher. I do this, I do this. Hey, what do you do? And I'm like, uh, I work in a nonprofit ministry talking to college students. It can be a little bit hard to explain what I do. If I was a pastor, it would be a little bit easier. Sometimes I just say that. I'm a pastor for college students. It's easier to explain what I do. You can let that awkwardness hang there. Or you could say, you could turn it back around and say, hey, do you have any background with religion or church? Is that part of your life at all, right? Um, and you'd be amazed how many doors that opens to genuine spiritual conversation because then you can ask follow-up questions like how was that experience for you? Was that a positive? What were some things that were positive? What were some things that were hard about that? If you really want to get to know somebody, you got to know about the spiritual component of their life. Uh, and here's the third thing. Evangelism also includes ministering to other believers. I think often we think of evangelism as sharing with those who don't know about Jesus. And that's, that's an important component. But Paul, in Romans 1, he talks about how he's eager to preach the gospel to the Roman church, to believers. So here's what I would say. Don't lose your interest and your curiosity in coworkers or neighbors once you find out they identify as Christian, once you find out they identify as Catholic or, or you're involved um, in, that they're involved in a church. One time I was out, uh, I was on a summer mission when I was a college student. We were out, you know, kind of sharing our faith in the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. I was with this other guy, and, um, a student on the mission, and, and we talked to this guy from Argentina, and he asked him that question. Oh, what's your spiritual religious background? He's like, I'm Catholic. And he's like, awesome. Well, cool, nice to meet you. I'll see you later. And that's where the conversation ended. He found out he's Catholic. Okay, we're done here. Case closed, you're Catholic. That's all I need to know. Um, but man, people's journeys don't end when they begin to walk with the Lord, right? So we should still seek to enter into the spiritual journeys of people we find out have a Christian background, to care for them, to point them towards Jesus too. Um, since I'm in full-time ministry, one of the things that I've done uh, over the years here um, is to try to find ways to meet just normal people because all my coworkers are Christians, right? Um, so one of the things I did was I joined a cycling club here in Riverside uh, to meet normal folks and I've done this process of just discovering where people are at spiritually, and they're all over the map, as you might expect. Some of them identify as Christians. Some of them are sort of secular humanists. Some of them, they don't care about religion. Some of them, maybe they would say they're a Christian, but they're pretty nominal in their faith. Um, and I've been able to have a lot of spiritual conversations, but I, I've got to tell you, some of the most significant have been with the cyclists I've met that claim to know Christ, that, that claim to be believing. And I've got to pray with them as they've struggled with deconstructing their faith, as they've struggled with contemplating divorce, with parenting issues, with church hurt, with mental health. Many believers, they go to church occasionally, but they don't really have a fellow believer to walk the journey with. You could be that person to them. You could be that person to them. So here's what I want you to do. Take out your journal or a notes app on your phone. And I want you to think through just the names of three people that are in your world somewhere. Maybe they're in your work, maybe they're in your neighborhood, maybe it's somebody in your classroom. And maybe these are people that you have no idea where they're at spiritually. And you could take that step of faith just to discover that. It's like, wow, I really don't know this person's background. Maybe you want to get to know them better so you can see if there's any unmet needs in their life you can care for. Maybe you know they're a believer, but you don't really know where they're at in their relationship with God. Maybe you know where they stand, but you don't know why, or you don't know if they clearly understand where you stand. They don't know the gospel message. 
There's an old outreach within crew called Prayer, Care, Share. So first we just pray regularly for a few people who don't know the Lord, the people that God puts on your hearts. Then you look for ways to care for them. And then you look for ways to open up paths towards spiritual conversations and sharing. So this, this step of identifying and praying for people, it's an important first step into kind of entering into the harvest. It's an important first step to extending the love and care of Jesus towards people. Because if you don't have people to move towards, you can't be a part of that harvest. So think of three people, and you can, I'm going to come back to this. So if you, if you can't think of anybody now, somebody, something pops to mind, just go ahead and jot it down. Um, so now that we've filled out some of the details of what this job entails, let's look at two powerful motivations that we see for the entering the harvest in this passage. So one motivation is the great need that people have for Christ. So let's read verse 36 together. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's three observations to make about Jesus in this verse. First, Jesus saw the crowds. And this wasn't just literally Jesus saw them. Jesus took an intentional step to see and to notice the people that were before him. And think about it for yourself. Each week, you likely see hundreds of people, whether it's people you know, maybe people that you see while you're out driving, people that you see while you're walking downtown by the Mission Inn or going to the grocery store, going to a coffee shop. And how often do we go about our days and literally just kind of not notice the people around us, just not really think, not contemplate that there's human beings around us. And each of those people that we see has a story Each of them has needs and brokenness in their lives. Each of them has a longing for something that apart from God will never be fulfilled. And I think often we're we're just too busy to see and notice others. Maybe we're consumed with the tasks of our day. You know, I know finals week is coming up this next week. Maybe we're, we're too busy studying, right? Maybe we're running late. Maybe our life is just too full of commitments to see and notice others. But Jesus did see. He took this intentional step to open his eyes and really see the crowds. And the second observation to make is that Jesus grasped the true spiritual condition of the people around him. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep don't do very well without shepherds. Without a shepherd, they have no protection. They're vulnerable to predators. Without a shepherd... They could fall into a ditch and get stuck somewhere. Without a shepherd, the flock just scatters. And this sheep and shepherd language, it connects, as you probably know or might know, to to a long tradition within the Old Testament that describes the people of Israel as a flock and ultimately God as their shepherd. But the Old Testament also calls the leaders of Israel shepherds at various points. And it often indicts them for failing to care for the flock for failing to care for the flock, for filling one passage in Ezekiel 34, it talks about the shepherds slaughtering the sheep and eating them instead of caring for them, right? So what Jesus sees as he looks at this crowd, he sees a flock of sheep, he sees the people of Israel harassed by failed leaders like the Pharisees and Sadducees who really, they're looking out for themselves instead of really trying to guide the people. He sees them harassed by oppressors like the Romans. You know, they were under occupation from a foreign country. 
He sees a people misled, abused, and lost as a result of that. How do you see others? You know, honest question. How do you see others who don't know the Lord around you? Maybe you look at some of your neighbors and coworkers and you think, it looks, seems like they've got their lives together. Maybe they seem like they're even doing better than you. It's like, wow, their marriage looks pretty great. You know, maybe this new age spirituality actually works for people, right? Um, maybe they seem confident in themselves. But we know that things on the surface are rarely what's reality, right? Things are rarely what they seem. So, and, and I think the affluence of suburban upper middle class life, it can cover over some of those issues that sometimes are more obvious if you enter into, say, an inner city neighborhood. But you know that that tangible brokenness is there in people's lives. There's divorce, there's infidelity, there's drug and alcohol abuse, there's struggles with identity and worth and mental health. Even if it seems like people have got things together, you know there's probably more to the story. But beyond that, we know the unseen spiritual reality of those who don't know Christ, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. First John 5.19, it says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, that the thief who represents the enemy comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The reality for those who don't know Christ is that they are harassed and helpless. Whether they know it or not, they are dominated by an evil spiritual system following the course of a world that's bent on their destruction. They're vulnerable to the schemes of the enemy who longs to kill and steal and destroy. Do you see non-believing people that way? Do you see them as harassed and helpless? Or do you see them as enemies, debate partners? I've, seen, I've, I've encountered that before. Do you see them as annoyances? Uh, in my ministry, I seek to mobilize Christian college students to share their faith with others. And this isn't the most common thing I run into, but now and then, I encounter Christians, often raised in the church, um, who maybe have had limited interactions with you know, kind of the non-believing world. And they see non-believers as a threat rather than as someone to love. They see non-believers as the bad crowd, right, who could influence them. That non-believers cause their faith to stumble. They see them as the liberal professors that are seeking to brainwash them. Maybe their foul language and their parties and their moral choices offend them. But this is not the heart of Jesus in this passage. It's not the heart of Jesus anywhere. As a result of seeing as a result of understanding their true spiritual condition, Jesus had compassion on the crowds, right? That's the third observation to make. He saw, he understood he had compassion. And this word compassion is really interesting because it's translated from a a Greek verb that refers to the intestines. So it refers to the lower digestive tract. You see, in English, the seat of the intellect is the head and the seat of emotions is the heart. But in the ancient Near East, 
the seat of the intellect, of thoughts. You think with your heart and you feel with your guts. You think with your heart and you feel with your guts. And we have these expressions in English too, right? You can have a gut reaction. You can have a visceral response, right? Your viscera or your intestines. Something can be so morally repugnant it makes you sick. Or how about, how about this? That sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Has anybody ever experienced that before? That maybe so much fear or so much dread. You have this feeling in your stomach. When I was in second grade, I had a little bit of a temper problem. And I made some bad choices in daycare or after school program one day. And I was accused of throwing a chair. I still say I was innocent, right? But I was accused of throwing a chair at one of the teachers. And I still remember just waiting in the director's office for my dad to pick me up. And I knew I was in huge trouble. I knew they were going to tell my dad what I did. My dad was not somebody that you wanted to be in huge trouble with as a little kid. And I still remember that sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach while I dreaded my fate. Right? I see some nods. Some other people have felt this before. To have compassion, it's a deeply felt gut response to perceiving brokenness. Those society thought of as farthest from God, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the moral and social outcasts were not the object of Jesus' disgust. They weren't the target of his criticism, his anger. They were objects of his compassion. Jesus came not to call the righteous, righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We need to tap into this motivation for entering the harvest. Jesus loved people, and he calls us into his love for people. He calls us into his compassion. And don't forget that you yourself, you are someone that Jesus sought out. You're someone he saw. You're someone he understood. You're someone he pursued and had compassion upon. And so we need to see others like, likewise. So open up your journal once again. You know where your notes at. Look at those names that you wrote down. Look at those names that you wrote down. If you could see them the way Jesus sees them, what would you see? What would you understand? What would you notice and have compassion on? And here's some prompts while you're thinking about that. What aspects of brokenness do you see in their lives? Maybe it's the way people seek worth in their accomplishments or an accumulation of wealth. Maybe it's the way people suppress reality through substances or social media or other addictions. Maybe it's seeing families torn apart through conflict or through abuse, through selfishness. Maybe there's someone God is prompting you to move toward at work, someone who seems as far as possible from being a Christian, the last person you would be expect, expect to be interested I want to point out, it's, it's hard to see these things. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't stop to notice them. And I think of the Matrix. Does anybody remember the Matrix or know it? You know, sometimes it's like, okay, it's starting to come back. I'm like, for a while there, it kind of disappeared. And, you know, young people especially didn't know references to that. But in the Matrix, Neo, he's given this choice between the red pill and the blue pill. And the red pill, I think it was, I could be getting this wrong, would open his eyes to the truth that humanity was actually living in this digital illusion created by AI. Watch out, watch out, chat GPT, right? It's coming for us, right? The blue pill, it would allow him to go back to the comfort of that illusion and forget all about this matrix stuff. I think most of us 
that illusory comfort. It sounds, it sounds all right. It sounds good rather than to live with acute awareness of that broken world around us, right? But what we remember, need to remember is that it's important to see these needs, but we can't carry them. We cannot carry the needs. We are not the solution. But you know who Jesus is. You know, the people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, who is Jesus? Jesus is the good shepherd. And he can carry those needs for us and for others. And he, he comes not to steal and kill and destroy, but to give life abundantly right? To protect, to heal. So we need to cast ourselves on him and we need to point the world around us towards him. And that leads us to another powerful motivation. This one's more on the positive side. There's great need, but there's also, there's great opportunity. There's great opportunity. As Jesus says, Matthew 9, 37 to 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I have to admit, I'm a bit of a pessimist. When I was 18, I got involved at Crew at UC Davis, and my attitude toward evangelism was not very good. And I think I really believed nobody wants to hear about Jesus. Nobody's going to become a Christian. I just saw people walking away from the faith, and I saw a world that I assumed was hostile or indifferent to God. And so part of my fear in engaging in evangelism, which took a long time to get over, was that the results would be poor. But notice something about this verse, about verse, verse 36. Jesus doesn't say, let's pray for the harvest. We're not sure how it's going to turn out. Let's pray that the harvest is going to be really good. Jesus doesn't say, I'm worried about how people are going to respond to me. Let's ask God for openness in people's hearts. No. He says there isn't any harvest problem. There's no problem with the harvest at all. What's the problem? The problem is that there's a worker shortage. There's a worker shortage. The harvest is plentiful. There's so much opportunity out there. I think often we believe our friends, neighbors, and colleagues are uninterested before we've even asked them, before we've even entered into their stories. It's almost like we're saying no for them, right? But I'm constantly surprised by how I see God at work in people long before I enter the picture and in spite of even my lack of initiative to engage them. When I was in college, I worked at an office of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers as a technical writer. And this was a trip for me because I was still a student, but I shared an office with a PhD in hydrologic engineering. There were about 40 to 50 engineers that worked at that office. A lot of them were research engineers in hydrology or software designers. So I have to be honest. I mean, this is a high, high-level educational environment. I felt a little shy about my faith in a liberal college town surrounded by PhDs in various sciences. Um, and across the hall, there was this middle-aged engineer who, he seemed to have this really hard exterior. Uh, he just kind of walked straight in his office and then left at the end of the day. He wasn't a very social guy. And he was one of those I never worked with. I never really engaged socially. Um, but one day he pops into my office to talk with my office mate, Todd. Um, and then he sees on my little posting board, I have a passage of ancient Greek on the wall. And he's like, what is that? Uh, he's just interested. It looks like Elvish or something, and he wants to see what it is. And I said, oh, it's a quote from the Bible. It's a quote from the Beatitudes, you know, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, so on and so forth. And then he nearly grabbed me. He, like, grabbed me, and he pulled me into his office, and he shut the door. I'm like, what's happening to me right now? And he told me um, about how he had been, I don't remember the whole conversation. It was a blur, but he told me about this debilitating back pain that he'd been having for the last six months or a year, 
Um, and I think he had maybe grown up Catholic and he was just seeing these signs of, of uh, spiritual realities around him. And, uh, and he wanted to know, because he found out I was a Christian, he was like, do you think this could be God reaching out to me? And I was just, I was dumbfounded. I, I, I didn't know what to say, you know, um, but, uh, but I was able to have this, this spiritual conversation with him. Um, I, I'm constantly surprised. I'm not in evangelistic ministry because I'm like Ray Comfort Jr. or something like that. I'm really not. Um, but because God constantly shows me his power to save people. He constantly shows me his work in their lives in spite of my pessimism. Um, and I saw this not only in conversations like that, but you know, during my freshman year at Davis, I saw my future wife, Jessica, come to faith. And I was like, wow, from a totally non-believing background, new age, you know, kind of just totally non-religious. And I was like, wow, this still happens. So my friend Sunny Singh is coming from a Hindu background. He came to know the Lord his freshman year at Davis. It was, it was incredible. And God continues to show me. I, I keep having a hard time believing it, but he continues to show me the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. The real problem this passage points out is not the world's lack of interest in God, Right? It's Jesus' followers' lack of interest in the job that he's given them. So we have to ask, why? Why is there such a shortage of laborers, right? And I think some of us don't enter that harvest because we're fearful the results will be poor. And here's a key idea for us to grasp. The role of a harvester is not to make the harvest plentiful. It's not. They didn't grow the crop. They didn't plant it. They didn't water it. They're not cultivating it. That's not their job, right? The harvest is what it is, and what's the harvester's job? You've got to go in there, and you've got to gather it before that crop rots, right? Before that corn goes bad, before those olives rot on the tree, before the grapes rot on the vine, the harvesters have got to get in there in that season and gather their crop. So the, the harvester's job, their responsibility, is not to make the crop fruitful. It's simply to gather it. Simply to gather it. And Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 4. He tells his followers, he says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And he says in that passage, look, the fields are white for the harvest. He says, I'm not asking you to sow. I'm not asking you to till the soil. I'm asking you to enter in and reap the fruit of my work. Some of your friends and your neighbors are much more spiritually interested than you might imagine. For some, you'd be surprised at the result of your reaping. For others, maybe you'd be discouraged, right, to find they're not open to God. But your role is not to make anything happen. Your role is not to manufacture their spiritual interest. God is at work. He's doing the heavy lifting. Only he can change hearts. He's asking you to enter into his work to discover what that harvest is, to discover what that harvest is in the world around you. And some of us are worried people won't be interested, like I've been talking about. I think other of us, we don't enter into the harvest because we're worried we will mess it up. We're worried we're going to not know what to say. The truth is we are not in control. We are not in control. God is the Lord of the harvest, not you. And if he's not sweating, if he's not worried about the response of the world, then neither should we. So take, think of those names again. Think of those names again. I want you to imagine for a moment 
What would the plentiful harvest look like in their lives? How would the good shepherd long to comfort and heal them? How would you long for things to be different in their life? How would you long for for brokenness to be redeemed? And as you begin to pray for those people, looking for opportunities to move towards them in care and in conversation, be expectant that God will work. There's no reason for us to fear the result. God is sending us on a mission that we ultimately cannot fail in because our role is not to create the fruit. It's simply to be willing, to be curious, and discover what that harvest is around us. Finally, um, let's look at the qualifications for this role, the qualifications of a harvester. So read with me verses 38 to uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. God is in control. It's a powerful truth that we need to hold on to. He's the Lord of the harvest who ultimately owns and is sovereign over the field. And since that's the reality, it makes sense that Jesus points us first not to action, right? What does he point us to first? Prayer, to prayer. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's no part of this whole process God isn't Lord over. The results belong to him, right? Even these laborers, the willingness to enter into this harvest, that's from God too. That's an answer to prayer, right? And since that's true, we need to be deeply reliant on God through this whole process. He empowers the results and he also empowers us to take action. So here's the thing, prayer it doesn't preclude action. Faith doesn't mean we don't try. Rather, genuine faith, it leads to us taking action because we believe God will bring a result. Think of Abraham. He believed God's promise, right? That he would become a father of many nations. But he acted. He still acted in faith. Uh, He acted initially to leave his family and home. And God said, hey, just go to the place that I will show you. He didn't even know where he was going, but he left because he believed God, right? What God needs is faith-filled action. Actions that demonstrate our faith that God will work. And actions done in reliance on the sovereign power of God. That's exactly what we see Jesus do next in this passage, right? He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. And then look at 10.1 with me. So Jesus has invited his followers to pray for laborers to be raised up. And now, what is the first thing he does? He takes action. And what is he doing? He's raising up laborers and he's sending them out. Because it's at this point in Matthew's gospel, this is the first time that the 12 apostles are organized together and empowered and sent out for mission. And here's a key word from this this, uh, passage. It says that he gave them authority. He gave them authority. And when we hear that word, especially in Matthew, we should think immediately of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is what Christians call the Great Commission, right? And that doesn't start, the Great Commission doesn't start, go make disciples just by itself. But it starts, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Same word, authority. As we enter into this harvest, we don't go on our own authority. 
we go on the delegated authority of Jesus Christ to care for people, to share the gospel, to teach the word. In our society, we have a lot of ways of conferring authority on people. You could be an authority in your field of work or study because of educational uh, qualifications that you have. You have the right degree, you're board certified, whatever it might be, right? You could be considered an authority because of your achievements that people know about. You could and probably do have some authority by virtue of a position that you hold, whether it's a leader in your club or the job that you have. The plain fact is, on our own basis, we are not qualified for this position. We are not. We fail in many ways. We sin. We struggle to communicate biblical truths to other people. We back down out of fear. Maybe we can be selfish, right, and just kind of stuck in our own tunnel vision. And yet, God, by his grace, invites us into this job we're not qualified for. And he doesn't ask for us for our qualifications. He doesn't ask for our CV. He lends us his own qualifications. He doesn't ask us to earn our place. He gives us a place in the kingdom because of Jesus' work on our behalf. He doesn't ask us to be powerful. He empowers us with his resources. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This harvesting work God is calling us into is not based on the letter, which Paul is using as a shorthand for like the law of Moses or life based on works. It's not based on earning our place. It's not based on being qualified to tell others. It's not based on being spiritual enough, being trained enough in evangelism. It's not even based on having the gift of evangelism, which people talk about a lot. It's based on the life-giving work of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We all have the Spirit of God within us, and he has qualified us. Friends, that same Lord of the harvest who's sovereign over this whole process dwells within you. Maybe you felt unqualified to lead a Bible study. Maybe you felt like you're not spiritual enough to share your faith. Or maybe like Moses or Jeremiah, you say, I don't know how to speak. I'm not good with words. Well, God isn't asking for your qualifications. He's asking you to lean on the qualifications of Jesus Christ. To lean on the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. To trust in him and to take action that reflects that trust. That's really the heart of the gospel message, right? God doesn't ask us to measure up. He asks us to trust in Jesus who measured up on our behalf. This is as true as our participation in this kingdom work in something like evangelism as it is for how we got into the kingdom in the first place. We live our whole lives by grace through faith. So think again about that list of names that you wrote down. And I want, to think, I want you to think of one step of faith that you could take this week, to demonstrate your trust in the Lord of the harvest, to enter into that harvest field of the world around you. Maybe there's one friend you could ask to pray for. You don't know what their spiritual background is, but you could say, you know, I'm a Christian, I pray. Is there any needs in your life I could be praying for this week? Maybe there's a Christian you're aware of at work you could ask to pray with during the lunch hour or even start a little Bible study together. Maybe there's a neighbor you could ask, you might know I'm a Christian. 
What does your tradition say about Jesus? Or even more fundamental than that, maybe there's a neighbor you've been waving at for like three years, but you don't know their name. <laughs> and you can say, hey, I've been living across you for a long time, and I just, I want to introduce myself. I want to know you better, right? Demonstrating that curiosity. But take, take a step of faith that demonstrates an expectant trust in God that he is at work. Let's, let's conclude. As you think about that list of names, it's likely God hasn't put a professional minister in their world. It's likely there is no missionary in their circles. He's put you there. He's put you there and he's empowered you. He wants to show his love to them through you. The work of the harvest is not a job for professional Christians, but for all who profess Christ. Some of us maybe value our vocational work too little. Some of us may value it too much, but whatever you think of your job, God has a job, another job that's incredibly important. And the heart of it is to be other-centered and to take an interest in their lives, pointing them towards the redemption they can find in Jesus. So let's think of that work holistically. Let's care for people's bodies and souls. Let's value relationship. Let's try to see people through Jesus' compassionate eyes, rest on God's control, and let's take faith-filled action, empowered by the authority Jesus Christ has delegated to us. And here's my recommendation. Thinking about those names, start with prayer. Pray for them for a week, and then move towards them in some way, in, in curiosity, in conversation. Look for opportunities to care. And then finally, move that relationship into spiritual territory. Ask, take the step of faith. I know it feels scary, but to ask a spiritual question. Ask them, what has your spiritual journey been like so far? And as we think about those people, um, let's be expectant that God is at work in their lives. And now I want to pray and, and wrap up this message and we'll move into a time of response afterwards. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful. You are just so patient. It says, it says in the word that you're not slow to fulfill your promise. You're patient. You don't, you don't desire any of us uh, to perish. You, you desire everyone to reach a knowledge of the truth and repentance. And you've been patient with us. And as you're patient with us, you've been a patient pursuer. Uh, you're a patient pursuer of, of the world that doesn't know you. And I want to pray um, specifically for uh, everyone here. I pray that you would help us to know um, the power of the Holy Spirit within us. If there's maybe one of us that hasn't felt qualified, maybe we don't feel spiritual enough, we don't feel like we know what to say. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the truth of the gospel. That's not about our qualification. That you have empowered us. And God, as I think about the many names that have, have been written about, have maybe been thought about, Lord, we pray for them. We pray that as you've been patient with us, you'd be patient with them and that you would give them opportunities to hear about Jesus, that they would feel the love and the care and also hear the message of Jesus through us. So Lord, we invite you to work. We thank you that the harvest is plentiful. Give us courage to enter into it. In Jesus' name, amen.